and struggle. A guilty verdict in the case that exposed deep cracks in America as more police shootings shocked the nation. We are all a part of George Floyd's legacy. Are things going to change? Vice President Kamala Harris on the weight of responsibility she feels next. And key vote. President Biden prepares to lay out his priorities to Congress. Infrastructure, new taxes, gun control. The hard part starts now. Why don't you take the greatest need that we have and do it on something that we all agree on? The man who holds the key to Democratic priorities, Senator Joe Manchin, joins me in moments. Plus, starting point, as critics from within the GOP say they worry about the party's future, a group of moderate senators say they're trying to find compromise. Is a deal possible? Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito joins me to discuss ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is wondering just how much things have changed. In the days since George Floyd's family and communities across America celebrated the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict, the nation has felt both hope that things are changing and despair over new police shootings. Now, a bipartisan working group in Congress says there is momentum to make real progress on policing reform, an effort that failed just last summer. And the White House says police reform will be a key part of President Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress Wednesday night, part of an ambitious agenda he hopes to pass with the slimmest majorities in the U.S. Senate. As the nation waited to hear from the Chauvin jury, I spoke exclusively with Vice President Kamala Harris about her history-making role, the weight of the responsibility that brings, and how and when President Biden seeks her advice. Nine minutes and 29 seconds, right? We all watched that video. Many of us watched it multiple times. And um, people are in pain over what we all saw in that video. And um, in fact, it was in large part because of that case that together with my then colleagues, Cory Booker in particular, and then on the House side, Karen Bass, that we wrote the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And I really do hope that the United States Senate, the House has passed it, that the United States Senate will take it on and have the courage to take it on. Because there is no question that we've got to put an end to these moments where the public questions whether there's going to be accountability, questions whether there's going to be the kind of fairness that, that we should all expect and deserve um, in all of our lives, and in particular as it relates to people of color with a particular emphasis on black and brown men in the criminal justice system as it relates to policing. This verdict is but a piece of it, and it will not heal the pain that existed for generations, that has existed for generations among people who have experienced and firsthand witnessed what now a broader public is seeing because of smartphones and the ubiquity of, 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 of our ability to videotape in real time what is happening in front of our faces. And that's just the reality of it. And that's why, that's why Congress needs to act. And that's why they should pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. This is really a moment in America. Yeah. Uh, racial tensions, as you just mentioned, they are really palpable. Your experience, your life experience, is different from every one of your predecessors. Mm -hmm. How is that bringing itself to bear right here in the White House? 
Well, I think that, you know, first of all, you'll recall that um, when Joe Biden asked me to join him on the ticket, he did so with a, 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 a sense of intentionality, of purpose, knowing that he and I may have very different life experiences, but we also have the same values and operate from the same principles. But it was something that I, I, I know he was very intentional about in terms of asking me to run with him and to serve with him, which is that I will bring a, a perspective um, that will contribute to the overall decisions that we make. Uh, he and I are in almost every meeting together, um, have made almost every decision together. I'm not going to talk about our private conversations, of course, but I can tell you that um, it is often the case that as I will ask his opinion about things, he will ask my opinion. And, um, and through that process, I think that we, um, we arrive at a good place. And ultimately, of course, he is the president and he makes the final decision. Do you feel a special responsibility given the fact that... I, listen, I carry a great, great weight of responsibility um, knowing that there are so many people, again, the generations of women who fought for and imagined there would be a woman vice president or a woman on the ticket. And I think of that all the time in terms of the responsibility I have to hopefully make them proud. Um, I carry a great sense of responsibility for all of the young girls and boys of color, those who identify in some way because maybe no one expected something of them, but they, they expect a lot of themselves um, to, to do well and to do right and to do good. Um, so yes, I carry a, a great, great sense of responsibility, if not um, of the seriousness of the responsibility um, to, to be in this position and be a voice for those who have not traditionally been in the room. You mentioned police reform uh, yeah. a couple of times. The House, of course, has passed mm -hmm. uh, the bill that you were a co-sponsor of mm -hmm. when you were in the Senate, but it doesn't have, there's not a high hope for it to pass as is in the United States Senate. So, you know, you talked about the fact that you have a special responsibility. The president talked about mm -hmm. uh, the fact that he would always have the backs of African-Americans in this country. So will you and he get more involved in the informal negotiations going on? And if so, how? Well, we've made our um, position clear, each of us. And as an administration, we've made our position clear. But it is for the folks in the Senate um, to, to work together to resolve um, whatever may be differences of opinion about the, the details of the legislation. But I think there's no question that the American people, um, in a bipartisan way, realize and, 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 and want that there will be some reform of this system. Uh, more broadly, there mm -hmm. have been at least 50 mass shootings yeah. in America in yeah. a little over a month. Uh, your administration has made clear that infrastructure is the next big legislative priority. Mm -hmm. Why not guns? Anthony Fauci told me over the weekend uh, that gun violence is a public health emergency. Well, I, I would disagree. We actually, as an administration, have taken action. Um, the president issued executive orders, for example, uh, on ghost guns. And, um, and there is only so much, however, that a president can do through executive action. This president, Joe Biden, has a long-standing history 
of speaking very clearly and unambiguously about the need for smart gun safety laws back from the time that he was in the Senate through today. Um, But I guess that emphasizes the point that both he, when he was in the Senate, when I was in the Senate, same thing, we were pushing for legislation. Congress has to act. Exactly. Because we have to codify, that's a fancy word for make permanent, make the law that we agree we should have background checks. That's just reasonable gun safety laws. We should have an assault weapons ban. Assault weapons have been designed to kill a lot of people quickly. They are weapons of war. And, and Congress has to act, Dana. I mean, you know, I was recently in Connecticut. Um, Senators Murphy and Blumenthal and, and, and the governor there, so many people, the families of Sandy Hook, you know, I honestly thought, I honestly thought that when those babies, 26 and 7-year-old children were slaughtered, I really thought Congress would act. I thought that would be the thing. And it didn't happen. And, um, and but do you think it can happen? My, my it question has was to about happen. but my question was about happen. your priority as an administration but pushing it But it is it part of our priority. We have to multitask. So not one to the exclusion of the other. President Biden gave Kamala Harris her first major assignment as vice president, and critics are seizing on it. I'll ask her about that next. And in a divided Senate, the whole Biden agenda could depend on him. Senator Joe Manchin is with us ahead. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. Close to 100 days in, and Vice President Kamala Harris's role inside the Biden administration is taking shape. The president has said he wants her to be the last person in the room when he makes a big decision, and he recently made her the point person on one of the biggest challenges facing his young presidency. Let me ask about immigration. Of course. President Biden tasked you with leading diplomatic efforts to work with Mexico and the Northern Triangle countries uh, to address the root causes of migration. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you define success in this role? That's a great question. Well, let's first talk about what it is. Um, You know, I come at this issue from the perspective that most people don't want to leave home. They don't want to leave their grandparents. They don't want to leave the place where they grew up, where the, you know, they speak the language, where they know the culture, um, the place where they're from, the place that is home. Most people don't want to leave home. And when they do, it's usually for one of two reasons. They're fleeing some harm or they cannot stay and satisfy the basic necessities of life, such as feeding their children and having a roof over their head. That's the, that, that is part of, a big part of what is going on. So I look at the issue of what's going on in the Northern Triangle from that perspective. And then my take on it is that we've got to, understanding that, we have to give people some sense of hope. That if they stay, that help is on the way. And that brings me to then my focus, which is, for example, I convened a group of members of our cabinet, um, Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Commerce, the head of the USAID, which is our aid organization. Um, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, was a part of it. Jake um, Sullivan was a part of it. 
and bringing together members of our cabinet to do what, for example, is going to happen out of commerce, which is they're going to convene a, a trade mission virtually now, and then the hope is in person later. With agriculture, Tom Bilsack is going to increase our focus and our resources around helping the farmers in that region who have been devastated by crisis in terms of climate and, and drought. Mm-hmm. USAID, we're increasing our disaster response because, again, of the hurricanes. So this is the kind of work that has to happen. The kind of work that has to happen is the diplomatic work that we've been engaged in, in term, including my calls to the president of Mexico, the president of Guatemala, um, and, and we have a plan to actually have a, another meeting um, coming up soon. Are in, you going to go there? In that regard, it is, yes, we're, we're working on the plan to get there. We have to deal with COVID issues, but I can't get there soon enough in terms of personally getting there. And then, and then we have to also look at the piece about community-based organizations. So, for example... This week, in addition, or next week, in addition to meeting again with the president of Guatemala, I will be meeting the following day with the community-based organizations in Guatemala. They call them basically civil society to figure out how we can better assist what they're doing on the ground Mm -hmm. in a way, again, that they can give the resources to people who naturally want to stay at home and give them some sense of hope that help is on the way. This is the work that we're doing, but it's not going to be solved overnight. It's a complex issue. Listen, if this were easy, it would have been handled years ago. Well, that's what I was going to ask you when President Biden said, um, you know, would you like to do this or not? Would you like to? You will do this? Did you say, oh, gee, thanks, Mr. President? No, he asked me to do it, um, just as he was asked to do it. Joe Biden, as vice president, was asked by President Obama to focus on the Northern Triangle. Mm-hmm. And he has asked me to do and to carry on the work that, that he did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get back, get back to the question that you've asked. Um, we're making progress, but it's not going to evidence itself overnight. It will not. But it will be worth it. And I will tell you, part of my approach to this is we've got to institutionalize the work and also internationalize it which is why, for example, I'm working with Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, and we're going to be increasing the requests we're making of our allies in the United Nations. Because, again, this, this is about the Western Hemisphere. Um, we are a neighbor in the Western Hemisphere. And it is also about understanding that we have the capacity to actually get in there if we are consistent. Part of the problem is that under the previous administration, they pulled out, essentially, a lot of what had been the continuum of work. And it, it, it essentially came to a standstill. You're rebuilding it. We have to rebuild it. And, and, and I've made it very clear to our team that this has to be a function of a, of a, of a priority that is a, an American priority and not just a function of whoever happens to be sitting in this chair. Because, for example, looking at, again, the root causes... Extreme weather conditions has had a huge impact on one of their biggest um, industries, which is agriculture, including drought, right? Mm -hmm. And so a residual point not only is about the economic devastation and what we need to do to assist with economic development and relief, but it's also, they've got extreme hunger there Mm -hmm. and and food insecurity. And Mm -hmm. so what we need to do to address that, because again, if parents and if children cannot literally eat if they cannot have the basic essential things that everyone needs to live, of course they're going to flee, and that's what we're saying. President 
Biden always said that he wants you to be the last person in yeah. the room, particularly for big decisions, just as he was for President yeah. Obama. He just made a really big decision. Afghanistan. Yes. Were you the last person in the room? Yes. And you feel comfortable? I do. And, and, I, and I'm going to add to that. Um, this is a president who has an extraordinary amount of courage. He is someone who I have seen over and over again make decisions based on what he truly believes, based on his years of doing this work and studying these issues, what he truly believes is the right thing to do. And I'm going to tell you something about him. He is acutely aware that it may not be politically popular or advantageous for him personally. It's really something to see. And I, and I wish that the American public could see sometimes what I see. Because ultimately, and the decision always rests with him, but I have seen him over and over again make decisions based exactly on what he believes is right, regardless of what maybe the political people tell him is in his best um, selfish interest. We're almost at 100 days. Tell me something that has surprised you that you never thought you would see, hear, or feel personally as the Vice President of the United States. We are going to lift half of America's children out of poverty, Dana. How about that? How about that? Think about that. I, I can't tell, maybe it's obvious, how much that means. That how much, that, that, what, what that will mean that's good stuff. That's really good stuff. Thank you for your time. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up, it is now more than 60 mass shootings in just six weeks in America. Is there finally momentum in Congress to act? Senator Joe Manchin is here next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. President Biden is set to deliver his first address to a joint session of Congress this week and lay out his priorities to a nation still fighting a pandemic and exhausted by a string of mass shootings while coming to a reckoning on racial justice. Biden's big sell to rebuild and reinvent the nation's infrastructure. Joining me now for an exclusive interview is the man who holds the key in the Senate to whether any of that can get done, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Thank you so much well, for coming good morning, in. Dana. Nice good to see to be you with you in person. Yeah, it's great to be in the studio again. Yeah. So you said this week the best chance for bipartisan infrastructure is to focus on what you call conventional infrastructure, roads, bridges, water, broadband. Uh, key Republicans introduced a proposal, $600 billion, targeted to the issues you're talking about. Do you support it? That's a good start. It really is. And I'm glad they did it because it came out of BPW committee, which is Tom Carper's chairman, and my colleague, Shelley Capito, is basically the ranking member. And they've worked it together, so we know it has bipartisan support. We just have to look to see if we've gotten everything in there that we need, and we'll be working on that together. So I'm very, very pleased with that. And this is a way we start negotiations. They've put their best uh, foot forward, but it's a starting point. And yeah. it's not the finishing line. So... Uh you say that, and clearly there is a lot of work to do, but I want to ask kind of more of a big picture, because there seems to be yeah. a bit of a disconnect on how to define infrastructure here. Uh, President Biden has broader ambitions. Sure. He, for example, has a plan 
inside his his big proposal that includes four hundred billion dollars for in in home care for elderly Americans and those with disabilities. Also, billions more for child care facilities. Do you support that? Well, here's the thing. All the things that he has stated that's needed is needed. To what extent we have to go in that and go through the process of having our hearings and looking at a markup in a committee and then seeing, having professionals come in, going to the floor with an amendment process. By that time, you're going to have all different sides coming to agree, hopefully to agree on something. Just take what we just did last week, which was the hate crimes bill. Who would have thought we'd have gotten 94 to 1? Think about that. People wouldn't have expected Democrats and Republicans to be in unison on that, and we did, but it had a process on but, the floor. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. It's hard to find bipartisanship, but one would think that condemning hate crimes against Asian Americans You would think all others, these things make sense, right. okay? But this is, these are real policy Well, these policies here that's so do, you, on, do you think that those I think they things, should be separated. You do? I do think they should be separated because when you start putting so much into one bill, which we call an omnibus bill, makes it very, very difficult for the public to understand. When you talk about infrastructure, they understand infrastructure. Internet is a new infrastructure that we didn't have before, and it should be. But you're talking about transit, airports, rail systems, the, the, uh, air, the lines as far as our electricity, which is the grid system. All of these things need upgraded. We have to make sure with the new energy coming on that we're able to get it to market. So all of this has to be incorporated. That's infrastructure, what we would call traditional infrastructure. The human infrastructure is something that we're very much concerned about. And when you think about all that we have done in the last year, and plus the COVID bill this year, American Rescue Plan, an awful lot has been done there, too. So we have to see what the effects of all that is. So just to be clear, it sounds like you're supporting a smaller package with what you deem traditional targeted, infrastructure. More targeted, Donna. Um, and would you tackle everything else with 51 votes through the reconciliation process? No. I, if people would just think about, if we go through the process that we're supposed to, we never used to use uh, uh, filibuster. And reconciliation is only used for budget. And that's why you have the guardrails put on with the bird rule. So we have to get back to getting it into the committees, let the committee chair and the members of those committees work it in jurisdictions, whichever it comes to. I'm chairman of energy. Energy pro uh, projects would come to me. Then we would work it, give it back to the majority leader. They put it on the floor with an open amendment process that's germane. Once you go through all of that, you know, Bird, Bob Bird, when he was majority leader, he'd keep us here like, Friday night, Saturday until was, we got it. That was a long time ago. Well, but still, yeah, things different work. Culture. Things work. Uh, President Biden is going to give his first speech <clears throat> to Congress this week. He's going to call for higher taxes on the wealthiest Americans in order to combat poverty and expand child care. One in five children in your home state of West Virginia uh, live in poverty. So do you think that raising taxes to help those who need it most I think it's we can find a balance, important. but when you have reports from professionals uh, that say that $400 billion to $1 trillion not even collected in the loopholes we had, we've eviscerated the IRS. They don't have the guts or basically the, the firepower they had before. All of this thing should be explored before we start just raising taxes exponentially. So you don't support raising taxes at all right now? Oh, yeah. I always support basically. I'm, 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 I'm supporting anything that makes common sense and is reasonable. But if you're so just saying raising, tax raising taxes for the sake of raising taxes and not collecting what taxes have already been owed, and we're not what closing What if you did it off. together? Well, you look at everything together and make sure. And you look at the basically the scope of the program of how much they want and see if that's necessary or needed. I but guess my question is, if there's somebody out there wondering if their taxes are going to, if they're wealthy, 
you know, part of the half of the top 1% wondering, are my taxes going to be raised? And looking to you, Joe Manchin, to answer that question, what's the answer? Oh, I think that basically you will be paying your fair share if your taxes are raised. But basically, have you been paying your taxes at all? The way you're able to report being in the super wealthy? Or have you been able to use different pass-throughs and different bypasses or loopholes that have been in the system? We're going to close all those. We have to. Senator, I talk to Democrats who tell me, The reason President Biden's ambitious agenda is so big and so bold is because they understand history. And history shows that the president's party, if they have majorities in Congress, as he does, um, oftentimes lose that in the midterm elections. And that's why they have a small window to get things done, they believe is possible. So they believe that you're one of the main roadblocks on getting those goals accomplished. How do you respond to that? I'm not a roadblock at all. The best politics is good government. I can't believe that people believe that if you just do it my way, and that'll give us the momentum to get through the next election. But when you do something that everyone tags on to, and I've seen good things happen, the people voted against it, took credit for it when they went back home. We won't give this system a chance to work. I'm not going to be part of blowing up this Senate of ours, or basically this democracy of ours, or the republic that we have. If we have a 51-vote threshold in the Senate, the same as the House, the House wasn't designed to be partisan. The House was designed to be hot as a firecracker. We were designed to cool it off. And that's the founding fathers. It was a brilliant, brilliant uh, strategy they looked at. So why can't we try to make this work? If, it, if you have the violent swings every time you have a party change, then we will have no consistency whatsoever. I want to ask you about the issue of guns. You're mm-hmm. talking a sure. lot about bipartisanship. You have had a bipartisan plan uh, to expand background checks for, for some years We have seen, I talked to the vice president earlier in the week, I said it was 50 mass shootings in six weeks. Now it's up to 60. It's awful. In in six weeks. Um, More than 90% of Americans support universal background checks. So where is the urgency on this? Shouldn't this be a really important key priority for you You as somebody who wants to work across the aisle? Every time a bill comes out, Dan, every time a bill comes out, it's, it's far in scope. We've basically took a bill way back in 2013, myself and Pat Toomey, and we worked on it and had good, bi- good bipartisan support. Then we lost it right in the last week. NRA was against it. But basically, we call it common gun sense. And now we have a group working together. You've got Chris Murphy doing a great job. Chris is looking for that balance. And is that doable? Is that balance I sure doable right now? I think it is doable that we can find common guns. You have to understand, law-abiding gun owners aren't going to loan their guns or sell their guns to strangers. But we have so many loopholes in the system. Can't we just fix what's broken? That's what a lot of people are asking. Well, that we do, but then we get a bill that has everything but that. It has that and a lot more. And you just, you know, they just can't take the, the common sense approach to fixing the things that are broken and then move from there. Before I let you go, sure. uh, you crossed party lines this week. You endorsed Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski. I know she's your friend, but you disagree on a whole lot of things. Uh, from the GOP tax cut sure. bill to the individual mandate, which you voted to repeal, Amy Coney Barrett. Why did you endorse her? Well, basically, when you have someone such as Lisa Murkowski, that just this solid, I'm not say solid, looks at the issue, not afraid to make and step out and make a decision. She's done that and done it so well over many, many years. Her and I have been friends, and we've had great conversations. And there's no gotcha moment. There's no time when she's ever basically gone just along party lines for the sake of party lines. She gives a good, good, strenuous thought process. And I think people like uh, Lisa Murkowski should be in the Senate. And I'm going to support the people that I do. I don't look at the party line saying, that's a barrier for me. Party line, 
the country is what my concern is in having the best people to make decisions. There's so much we can do together. You can't throw out. You just can't throw out the purpose of us being in the Senate. There's two senators for every state. Little Delaware, little Rhode Island, big California, big Texas, big New York. Yep. Why? They don't want the big person beating up on the little person. In the Senate, the minority always has input, and it has to stay that way. Senator Joe Manchin, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having Thanks me. Thanks for coming in. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. And the last two-term Republican president slams his party and what is to become under Donald Trump. So do moderate Republicans still support President Trump? Senator Shelley Moore Capito joins me next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. Some Senate Republicans are countering President Joe Biden's $2 trillion plus infrastructure plan with one of their own, a sliver of the size, close to $600 billion, focusing primarily on transportation, like roads and bridges, with other areas like broadband, internet, and drinking water. They're calling it a starting point. Joining me now is a Republican leading the effort on the counteroffer, Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Senator, you unveiled your own $600 billion infrastructure bill, a number you've called a good starting point. But President Biden is pushing for a $2.3 trillion bill. So if this is all about bipartisan compromise, are you willing to go over a trillion dollars to meet Democrats in the middle? Well, I think we have to look at uh, the comparison of the two plans. Uh, we really narrowed the focus on infrastructure to really look at physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, rail, airports, water systems. The president's bill of $2.2 trillion goes you know, far afield from that. So where I think the first starting point we need to have is let's do an apples-to-apples comparison of the physical infrastructure, core infrastructure part of his plan, or how it matches up with what we put forward. Uh, the president asked for our plan, and, and we, th- we thought it was really important to put a marker in to show what we thought was important, what's going to mm-hmm. be the job-creating infrastructure plan, and how much it would be. So I, th- I think we're at a really—and uh, all indications are it's time to really start putting the pencils to the paper. So just to uh, follow up on that, if the apples-to-apples match and, and you come to an agreement, you mm-hmm. are open to uh, a midway point just on the money. Well, we're open to looking at these all these different areas as long as it's paid for. As long we've always done this bipartisan, this physical infrastructure piece, and there's no reason we shouldn't be able to get to an agreed amount at this point. I don't know where that is right now, but at least we're talking, we're starting to talk, and we've gotten some good signals back that this is the direction the White House and others want to go. You've said that infrastructure should be fully paid for, but you also say increasing the corporate tax rate is a non-negotiable red line. So would any tax hike be acceptable to you? Where I think it's important for folks to know how we've paid for uh, the ideas we have on the table, we've got, of course, the gas uh, tax, which is the trust fund, which is a declining resource. We also have user fees. We have folks using our roads and bridges and other infrastructure that aren't really paying in for the maintenance and use of those highways. That would be electric vehicles or hydrogen or some hybrids. So we build that into the formula. I think, too, an idea that we need to look at is to look at the COVID dollars that have already 
already been uh, appropriated and, and move that towards infrastructure. Let our cities and towns use that money for roads and bridges for their uh, match. Uh, so I think we've got some really good ideas that, doesn't, that don't incorporate raising any taxes, but simply looks at the users and the consumers of infrastructure and says, let's pay with this, uh, with dollars that we generate from those, those uh, entities. Have you heard from the White House since you released your plan? Sure. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Very uh, encouraging signs. I saw what uh, Jen Psaki said uh, on her in her comments, and I've talked with others. And uh, we are circling back on Monday to uh, figure out the best strategies forward. I've talked to our ranking members. I've talked to my committee chairman. I've talked to Democrats. Uh, this is an active conversation, and, and I think that it's a good beginning. You've said that you expect climate change to be part of these infrastructure negotiations. You're a Republican mm -hmm. who believes the climate crisis is real, and you say that you want to be part of the solution. President Biden is proposing $174 billion for electric cars in his plan. Are you open to that? Well, the last highway bill that we passed, which is one of the one of the anchors of this plan, does have uh, infrastructure in there for electric charging stations and innovations around electric vehicles. Where I differ from the president is I don't think we need one hundred and sixty billion dollars to incent people to buy electric vehicles. I don't think that we should be building the charging stations throughout this country when private Private entities are going to be the beneficiaries of having charging stations at their different stopping points along the highways, and I think they should play a part here. So I think that's where we really start to really separate on EVs. I'm all about uh, moving forward with the technology and creating a a an electric vehicle economy. That's fine. But let's let the private sector participate in that. That's where I think uh, has the best uh, the best possibilities of really making the most out of our not just private dollars, but public dollars as well. I want to turn to the issue of police reform. Your fellow Republican, Senator yes. Tim Scott, proposed a compromise on so-called qualified immunity that would allow individuals to sue police departments, but not individual police officers. Do you support that? Well, I definitely support Senator Scott's efforts. I was on the Justice Act that got caught up in politics in the in the fall. Uh, I think he has redoubled his efforts and is working across the aisle. Uh, I think the time is now. I think there's a real, uh, a real, and it's probably past due, but a real want to get this done. And I think to get it done right. But we've got to make sure that uh, we are still recruiting in and, and have the possibilities of having what is a core, I think, function of our uh, of our uh, our government, which is a, a law enforcement that protects us. A qualified immunity is a, is a definitely a hot button issue. I think the way that uh, Senator Scott has formulated uh, some revisions to uh, qualified immunity is is on the table right now. I, I know he's in active negotiations on this piece, and I know that's a big piece of this. And do you like what he, what you've heard about it? Yeah, I mean, I like what Senator Scott's put forward. I think other things that we had in in the Justice Act would eliminates chokeholds. It 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 uh, makes mm -hmm. a registry so that you're not passing bad cop to bad cop. I mean, there's a lot of really good things in there that I think are going to be the core of any kind of justice bill that we pass. I know mm -hmm. there's different ideas. Uh, there's the George Floyd Act and others. So we'll be looking at that to try to find uh, ways to move forward. 
I want to ask about vaccine hesitancy, Senator. Polls show almost half of Republicans don't want to get a vaccine. I want you to listen to your fellow Republican, Senator Ron Johnson, and what he said about getting vaccinated. If you have a vaccine, quite honestly, what do you care if your neighbor has one or not? I mean, what, what is it to you? you you've got a vaccine, and it's, you know, science is tell, telling you it's very, very effective. So what, why is this big push to make sure everybody gets a vaccine? And he went on to say he's, quote, highly suspicious of what's happening here. Do comments like that hurt your push for Americans to get vaccinated, especially hesitant Republicans? Well, I definitely think that comments like that hurt. I believe that we should all have confidence that we should to not just protect ourselves, but our communities and our neighbors. We should get vaccinated. Uh, and, and I wouldn't say that only Republicans have hesitancy. I think that there are some folks that uh, are unsure. And, you know, when we saw what happened over the last week with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that, that really sort of chills uh, people that were maybe waiting so, mm -hmm. no, I disagree with my fellow senator. I think we ought to move forward. West Virginia's done a great job in this area, but we're starting to find that we have more vaccine than we do have people who are willing to step forward. So yeah. I'm trying to do whatever I can to say it's safe, it's reliable, and it's really about you and your neighbor. And, and that's what we need to take into consideration. Speaking of fellow Republicans, another one, uh, Liz Cheney, was under fire, you remember, for voting to impeach President Trump. There's a New York mm -hmm. Times report that some of her male GOP colleagues made what some women in the room considered sexist attacks. One compared it to when you, quote, look up into the stands and see your girlfriend on the opposition's side. As a Republican woman yourself, when you heard about that, what did you think? Well, I can tell you what, that, uh, Liz Cheney is one strong woman, and uh, I, I think she has a, a, a terrific uh, uh, insight and great strong backbone. So I don't think any, any, any comment like that could even touch her in terms of if offending her. I mean, people have to just stop with the uh, casual comments that are hurting, that they don't realize the ramifications of it. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like as a woman leader, I'm going to be just as strong as a man. And whatever whatever the side comments are, I just don't pay attention to them. We've just got to keep moving forward here. Uh, last question. You called President Trump's actions yeah. during the January 6th insurrection disgraceful. And you said history will judge him harshly. Would you support the former president if he runs again in 2024? Well, I think that's a really premature question, and I think January 6th still is very vivid in, in many of us uh, who were at the Capitol that day in our minds as a, as a very sad day for our country. Uh, the Republican Party is strong. We got a lot of folks who are not just looking to lead in 2022, but into 2024. So we'll see. I, I hope that President Trump plays a role. I don't know whether he'll run or not, but uh, you know, we can sort that out as time goes on. Thank you. Okay, Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican of West Virginia, I appreciate it. All right, thank you. And when we come back, some welcome good news to report. Some good news to share now. All of us here at State of the Union want to welcome its newest member of the CNN family, Oliver Sterling Arzamanov, born this week to our executive producer, Abigail, and her husband, Alex. 
Oliver and his mom are both doing great and ready for Oliver to get to know his big brother, Nicholas. Abigail, he is precious. We can't wait for both boys to be old enough to realize how truly remarkable their mom is. Thanks so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. Make sure to tune in to Jake Tapper's newly expanded weekday show starting tomorrow. That is The Lead, and it now airs from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. The news continues next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.